murder lovers. This is Fatina. And I'm Mackenzie. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. So today you are in for a treat. We have a very special episode put together for you guys. But before we get started, we want to thank you for those that have left reviews on iTunes. And we want to remind those that haven't. If you wouldn't mind, go leave us a review. We would very, very, very much appreciate it. Thank you. So today we are doing a really fun one. We're going to do the 12 Nightmares Before Christmas. I am super excited about this. This is nice. Yeah. So you guys are going to get 12 short stories all in one pass. So, buckle up. Buckle up. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> You're Hang in for a ride. Hats, kids. Absolutely. <laughs> We're going to cover a lot in this episode because we want to get your holiday started off right. Deck calls, not bodies. That's our motto around here. (laughs) Fatina, do you want to kick us off? Sure. All right. All right. So for these stories, um, I I tried not to leave a lot of the details out and try to fit in as much as I can in a short amount of time. So famous last words. (laughs) So the first case that I'm talking about is that of Trisha McCauley. And Trisha McCauley was born on February 25th, 1970, in West Suffolk, England. She was best known for her work on the movie Step Up. Oh. Have you heard about this? The case, not the movie. I hope you've heard about the movie. (laughs) I was going to say, did she work with Channing Tatum? She actually did. She was Jenna Dewan's body double. Ooh, so she got a work with him touch yeah. him feel him good for her do all the things with him mm. well so very pretty lady okay. and because she was jenna's body double definitely resembles her yeah a little bit has an air of her and it's you know all her friends family colleagues recall her as a very spirited actress she before she passed she had her own yoga studio and she was also a student at the time so everyone said she was just a joy overall joy on the evening of christmas day so december 25th 2016 trisha was going to go to a christmas party at her friend's house in washington dc where she was currently living before she left her house at around 4 30 in the afternoon she emailed the group that she was going to be on her way shortly and after a couple hours friends began getting worried because she had not showed up to the party and was not responding to any texts or phone calls. A couple of them began driving around town, retracing what would have been her route to the party from her house, and were being on the lookout for her Toyota Scion. They became even more suspicious when she missed a flight that she had scheduled that Monday morning. So Christmas was on a Sunday that year. And again, I went old school and I'm page turning here. (laughs) (laughs) It's 2019 and she's still writing in notebooks. (laughs) Why do they sell some though? (laughs) Honestly, I get like a weird satisfaction out of writing things down. So like I get it. So it's not known exactly how she initially encountered Adrian Johnson but it's believed that on her way to the Christmas party that evening, because it was cold out, Trisha, out of the goodness of her heart, saw Adrian walking in the cold and decided to give him a lift. Hmm. Good Samaritan gone wrong. Exactly. So all of this happened rather quickly. 
Everyone was on the lookout for Trisha's Toyota Scion, and it was spotted on the evening of Tuesday, December 27th, in the parking lot of a CVS pharmacy, and the police were immediately called. So the police show up to the parking lot, and they encounter Adrian Johnson, who was sitting inside of the car, and did not put up any kind of fight. He walked out of the car, handed the keys over to the police, and also handed over some credit cards of hers. Right there in the parking lot, the police looked into the car, and she was wedged between the back and the front seat. Oh my gosh. Adrian Johnson first said that Trisha had stopped to offer him a ride, and they had stopped at an unknown location and had consensual sex, and that after that, Trisha had shared thoughts of killing herself. I fucking doubt. Yeah. She picks up a stranger off the street, and she was like, hey, let's, let's, uh, no. No. <laughs> I think not, sir. So after further interrogation, Adrian Johnson confessed to her murder. He said that after getting in the car, he attacked her, raped her, and then used a scarf that she had on to strangle her. That sounds more on the nose. He then wedged her in the back seat, between the front and the back seat, and proceeded to drive around town using her credit cards, and he drove around with Trisha's body in the car for a total of those three full days. That's... In 2017, he pleaded guilty to the murder and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. After those 30 years are served he will be eligible for another 30 years of supervised release and will have to register as a sex offender. That is the case of Trisha McCauley. Yeah. A senseless murder that all began with selfless act of kindness. Literally no reason. No reason. Great. All right. Well, this one is a case that occurred in... Oh, gosh. It's a case that occurred in Leicester, England. Is that correct? I don't know. Leicester... Yes, that's what I'm going with. Mm-hmm. We have some listeners in the UK. If you wouldn't mind emailing us. <laughs> if you could uh, spell it like you say it. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, Leicester, England. Roger Cooper was a manager at a Costco store, and he was having a relationship or like a sexual situation with three women at the same time. Two of them worked at the store with him, and one of them was Samina Imam. Leading up to Christmas Eve 2014, Samina and Roger had carried on a relationship for about two years at this point. She was well aware of his long-term relationship with another woman, but she was tired of sneaking around and had given Roger an ultimatum and asked him to leave his girlfriend and make it official with her by the end of the year. They'd planned to meet up in a hotel on Christmas Eve and spend some time alone together before going and meeting up with their separate families on Christmas Day. Before she got to meet him at the hotel, Samina stopped at a grocery store and got snacks and also a bottle of champagne. My girl. (laughs) Where are the snacks, though? (laughs) I came for the snacks. You don't go to a hotel without (laughs) snacks and champagne. Who cares about the guy? Get your your snacks and champagne, girl. They had a pre-designated location to meet up and join cars so they could road trip the rest of the way to the hotel. So, in an approximate two-hour road trip to the hotel, Roger took a detour to his brother David's house. It's believed that Samina was almost immediately subdued as she entered David's house and was smothered with a chloroform-soaked rag. This wouldn't have been a hard task for these men, seeing as they were 6'5 and 6'7, and Samina was only 5'2. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's a big size difference. That's huge. Whole foot foot and three inches at the least this is equally interesting to me because this is the first time i'm reading this (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll make my own commentary in my own story. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> this all reportedly took place sometime around between 4 and 6 p.m. By 4.25 p.m., Roger started his journey back home and left his brother David to dispose of Samino's body. When he got home, he used Samino's phone to text himself in an effort to make it seem that she was still alive. Like a moron. <sighs> Complete moron. Have we learned nothing? He texted, quote, I'm fuming. I'm going to where I'm truly cared for. Samina's family knew that something was off when she wasn't at the family house on Christmas morning and alerted the police, and they launched an investigation. By January 4th, her car had been found abandoned and wiped of any potential evidence. So the weird thing about it was that, of course, these dumbasses had moved the driver's seat back too far, and it was at a distance that would have been too far for Samina to reach. <laughs> the way this is written out. That was great. Okay. So they obviously, the police knew that she was not the one driving the car because she's 5'2 and nope. you are a monster, sir. <laughs> not that everybody that's tall is a monster, but like. These two are. Yeah, they are. <laughs> we don't discriminate against tall people. <laughs> it didn't take long for detectives to piece together all the details together since they had pulled her phone records in recent location. They also received an anonymous tip that led them to a lot owned by David. Um, after about four days of digging, they found Samina's body. She had been wrapped in a cling wrap, plastic wrap type situation and then put into a sleeping bag. It was confirmed that her cause of death was the chloroform. Interesting. So the they poisoned her with, like, basically they suffocated Asphyxiated her, with, her okay, yeah, with, with the chloroform. And that was it? Yeah. What? Does it come into play what happened to the third female? No. We don't, nothing else happened to the other two females. Ah, wow. Okay. He didn't, like... Was that it? No. Oh, I'm just okay. like, I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem with these quick hits. <laughs> the brothers were arrested on January 7th for the murder and disappearance of Samina. It was revealed that they had already had a failed attempt at kidnapping her early in December and that they'd been planning on killing her for over a month. Their phone records show that they communicated by using code words and languages that <laughs> were quoted from Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I should have you write this up for me every week because I'm so entertained. <laughs> for example, quote, Death Star Complete. I'm assuming it was like Operation Death Star. Yeah. Okay. And quote, you are, <laughs> quote, you are expected Darth Vader. <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> by christmas next year they had found they'd both been found guilty in each sentence to 30 years roger's motivation in all this was that he felt like samina had been about to reveal his three-time dumbass <laughs> uh, so she was gonna call him out for his cheating ways and as far as david getting involved it's unknown but he admitted that he didn't even know Samina's name when he took her life. Um, so, realistically, the connection there is that he's doing his brother a solid. Right. Right. Great. Essentially. Family. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> that was entertaining. So, just so you guys know, I wrote that up and Mackenzie had no idea what she was reading. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was funny. I want to do that every time now. Um, so, yeah, that one was... Uh, Again, I mean, all of these are senseless, of course, but that one, he didn't even know her name. Yeah, like just break up with your girlfriend. God. Right. One of them. <laughs> Please leave that in. Mila has her Speaking comments. Speaking of Darth Vader, <laughs> Chewbacca, is that you? <laughs> I hope you guys heard that. That was Mila and her opinions. 
All right. So I hope I do this justice since this is the one that you were going to do. <laughs> okay. So this next case is that of Michelle O'Dowd. And this all happened in 2011 in Jacksonville, Florida. I think this is going to be one of two Florida cases that I'll be covering. So Michelle O'Dowd met Patty Michelle White through family members. Patty had been the ex-girlfriend of one of Michelle's nephews. Patty was 37 years old at this time, and Michelle was 67 years old. Patty was going through a rough patch in her life and just couldn't seem to get anything going good for her. And she was on the verge of becoming homeless. And Michelle, being the sweet lady that everyone knew her as, decided to offer Patty some assistance and invited her to move in with her. So by early December of 2011, Michelle had already taken the time to set up her Christmas tree, which everyone knew that everyone that knew her said that she took a lot of pride in. So it was trimmed to the nines. And Michelle had already filled the Christmas tree with wrapped presents for her children and her grandchildren. Michelle's twin brother, that called her his baby twin sister, became worried on the morning of December 2nd when Michelle didn't show up for work. He immediately knew something had to be terribly wrong, so he went straight to Michelle's house. When he showed up to her house, which was in a gated community, the front door was open, and some of the first things that he noticed while he was walking up was that her car was still in the driveway and the dog was home, even though the door was open and the house was in complete disarray. Her belongings were all over the house. Tables and chairs were thrown around. Her brother is quoted saying, I knew that this wasn't going to be pretty. As he continued going through the house, calling out for his sister, he suddenly spotted a foot sticking out from underneath the presents under the Christmas tree. Ooh. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I just remembered what happens. So he grabbed her, what was then a cold ankle, and called the police. Michelle had been beaten and strangled to that to death and then placed underneath the Christmas tree. It was immediately apparent who the perpetrator had been and Michelle's sister, sorry, Michelle's brother pointed the finger at Patty. Police tagged Michelle's debit cards and were notified of two $1,000 withdrawals that were made in South Carolina ATMs. They also got pictures from the ATM showing that it was indeed Patty. So this led up to Patty's arrest, and she was a passenger in a car that her mom was driving, and they eventually pulled them over. When Patty was taken into custody and was interrogated, she confessed to, the, to murdering Michelle right away and leaving her under the tree. Patty pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 45 years. This was all done for money. None of these, I think, have good reasons behind no, them. No, none of them do. But, of course, her family, you know, I, her brother's quoted saying that, you know, this was all over a stupid debit card. Ugh. Oh, my God. All right. Yep. 
So I'm doing the Covina Massacre next. So this one happened in 2008. So on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 45-year-old Bruce Pardo entered a house located in Covina, California. He was wearing a Santa suit at approximately 11.30 p.m. The house belonged to his former in-laws. He and his wife, Sylvia, had just finalized their divorce a week prior. There were about 25 people at the house for a Christmas party. That's and a lot of people. Yeah. He came through carrying a gift-wrapped package. Um, inside the package, it contained a homemade flamethrower. Um, he was also carrying two 9mm handguns. So when the door opened, his niece, who was 8 years old, Katrina Yosipalski, ran to greet him, and he instead pulled his guns out and shot her in oh the face. Oh my god! Yeah. Ooh. He then began shooting into the party, at some point standing over victims and shooting them point-blank execution style. Um, he then took the package with the flamethrower and used it to douse the house in gasoline before setting it on fire. Nine people died either from gunshot wounds or from the fire itself. Three were wounded, including the girl who was shot in the face. She ended up actually living. Whoa. Yeah. IDs of the victims had to be done using dental and medical records because of the fire. Pardo drove his car to his brother's house in Selmar. It was approximately 30 miles away. And he was found there with self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the head. He'd suffered severe burns on his arms from the fire, and that ultimately apparently foiled his plans of leaving the country. Mm -hmm. He'd also, like, rigged his car to explode if somebody tried to get in it and all these different things. It was just, yeah, insanity. He was going to try and flee to Canada, but decided not to, I guess. Those who died included his ex-wife, Sylvia Pardo, 43, from a gunshot wound. Alicia Sotomayor Ortega, who's 70. That was his mother-in-law. She died from a gunshot wound. Joseph Ortega, who was his father-in-law. He was 80 years old. He died from a gunshot wound. Charles Ortega, who was 49. That was the brother-in-law. They didn't know why for him, what exactly killed him. Sherry Lynn Ortega, 45. That was his sister-in-law, also reason of death unknown. James Ortega, 51. Brother-in-law, reason unknown. Teresa Ortega, 52. Sister-in-law, reason unknown. Alicia Ortega Ortiz, who's 46, and his sister-in-law, reason unknown. And Michael Andre Ortiz, who was 17 years old. That was his nephew. He died of the fire. Wow. Are these all... All the unknowns, are they from the fire, maybe? No, because the nephew died from the fire. They were able Hmm. to determine that. But the other ones probably had both suffered injuries from the fire as well as gunshot wounds. So it's unclear which actually killed killed them. Right. Got it. And they say basically that he was disgruntled over the divorce. And so he took it out on the family. You want to know an interesting part of that story? So shout out to Aaron. Salsi, he asked me to cover this case. Oh, really? And this is because he was, he lived in the same block when this oh. happened. And they had, they just pulled up from a Christmas party to their house, his whole family. And they saw the house up in flames. They barely could get into their neighborhood. They said it took like 80 firefighters to put it out. It was a big fire. Yeah. And they said they could see it even as they were driving up. Oh, my gosh. So, huge fire. They had, you know, trouble getting into their neighborhood. And they didn't think much of it other than an unfortunate house fire. Right. The next morning, oh, this gives me chills. They got on a plane to go to a resort in Canada. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. It gives me full body chills. So, they were at the Canadian resort when the news broke of what had happened and people at the resort were talking about 
this murderous piece of shit yeah. that happened in Covina, and they were from Covina, and then they realized it was the house that was on their street. That's crazy. Aaron, if I got something wrong, let me know. Hit me up. <laughs> it's a crazy story, though. Yeah. That's a lot of people. That's, yeah. <laughs> on to the next. <laughs> so this next story that I have for you is that it's a story of Dustin Lee Klopp. This case happened in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Dustin and Stephanie had been together for over three years. Between them, they had two children, ages five and two. And on the night of Christmas Eve, they had an argument that quickly escalated into a physical altercation. Dustin punched Stephanie's face, cut her throat with a kitchen knife, and then proceeded to bash her head in with an axe. That escalated quickly. Yeah. The two children, luckily, did not witness any of this. Thank God. So, but they were in the house. Klopp then placed Stephanie's body in a plastic bag and put her body in a shed that they had on their property. He finished cleaning everything in the house that same night. And the next morning on Christmas Day, Dustin took the children over to his parents' house and they proceeded to celebrate Christmas Day as normal. Later that day, on Christmas Day, Dustin called the police himself and told them where to find Stephanie's body. A couple of hours later, Dustin's father drove him to the precinct to turn himself in. So obviously it could be safely assumed that he had told his father something about Mm -hmm. what happened, and that's why he had driven him to the precinct. Right. It wasn't like, let's go on a little field trip. Can you drop me off right here? (laughs) (laughs) It'll be quick, I promise. I'm just going in to get cigarettes. I'll be be right back. It'll be be 12 to 15 years. In and out. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, he was officially charged with homicide. While he was in jail awaiting trial, the medical examiner determined that Stephanie's body had been sexually abused, but it was not determined if the sexual abuse occurred while she was still alive or if the abuse happened to her corpse. Ugh. Regardless, he was charged with the abuse of a corpse. Good. He never got convicted of the crime. Because as he was in jail awaiting trial, Dustin took his own life by hanging himself in the jail cell. Good. Honestly, good. I mean... I, didn't, I don't feel bad in those situations. And the I only don't. ones I feel bad is for the kids. They lost mom and dad. Yeah, they were going to lose him anyway. So. Right, but the mom part. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> All right, so next one is the Ashland tragedy. This one, we're going to take it way back. Okay. Take it way, way back. If you listen to Logic, that's one of his songs. Yeah. All right. Anyway, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm a Logic fan. <laughs> Logic, come find me. <laughs> All right, so the Ashland tragedy. Um, this one occurred in 1881. It's teenagers Fanny Gibbons, who was 14, Robert Gibbons, who was 17, and Emma Carrico, 15, were staying the night at the Gibbons house on December 23rd, 1881. Intruders entered the home and beat them to death with an axe and crowbar before setting the house on fire. Jeez. Yeah, we're just getting right into it. What? No foreplay here. <laughs> Nothing leading up to it. Emma's mom lived next door, and apparently this took place over a series of hours because it was the next morning that she looked out the window and realized that the house was on fire. Apparently, she'd been up at like 4 a.m. and didn't see anything going on, but in the morning, 
around 6 a.m., that's when she looked out and saw so that right the house that was window. on fire. So at this point, it's Christmas Eve, obviously, mm-hmm. and sees the house is on fire. Sounds the alarm, but it's too late. Remember, it's 1881. 911 isn't a thing yet. So, so literally sounds the alarm. Yeah, there's literally an alarm. <laughs> like some bell or something. I don't know. The teenagers were all found dead inside with their skulls smashed in, and the girls showed signs that they'd been brutally raped. Don't ask me where the parents were. I don't know. We're doing quick hits, remember? No rabbit holes here. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know where the parents were, but I do know that they were suspicious that the parents were involved, and along the way, they were exonerated. Wow. So the girls, yeah, they showed signs that they'd been brutally raped. George Ellis, who was a bricklayer, actually ended up confessing to the crimes and indicated that his co-workers, William Neal and George Kraft, had also been involved in this. Wow. They stood trial on January 16th, 1882, and were sentenced to death. A mob formed and actually removed George Ellis from his jail cell in the what? middle of the night on May 30th. And lynched him in Ashland. Yeah, it's literal lynch mob. Wow. And they'd actually like tried to move them and everything like that to prevent this from happening because apparently this was a thing back then. But well, it happened anyway. He was sentenced to death. So I mean, (laughs) if this was something the taxpayers paid for back then, then I (laughs) balling on a budget. Kraft and Neil were hanged for their crimes on October 12th, 1883, and March 27th, 1885. They were hanged by an actual, I mean... Executioner? Yeah, I was going to say professionally. (laughs) (laughs) That was their sentence. They served it out. Yes, an actual executioner, not a lynch mob. (laughs) Um... It was determined that Kraft had been planning to rape Fanny for quite a while, and he'd asked the other two to go along with it. They'd broken in the house and attacked the girls, and Robbie, who's the older brother, had tried to stop it or tried to stop them and stepped in. And that's when they attacked him with the axe and killed him before Jeez. attacking the two girls. Oh, he tried helping out his sisters. Yeah, that's so sad. Moving right along, the next case is of William Brandon. Adelot? I hope I'm saying that right. Sure. All right. Sounds good to me. Okay. Okay. So he was 17 years old, and he attended Gulf Breeze High School in Florida. So this is the second Florida case. He was a star baseball player there and was best known for his excellent pitching skills. Seemingly out of nowhere, he attacked his mother, Sharon, on Christmas Eve 2013. He took a baseball bat and struck her head and body. He then took a knife and slashed her throat. Then he stabbed her in the eye. Ugh. Stuff like that. I have an eyeball one that's going to be coming up. Spoiler. And it makes me so uncomfortable. Ugh. Gosh. And it plunged her eye into the eye cavity. Ah! Mm Mm-hmm. He left her laying in a big pool of blood that she was discovered in by a friend the next day. He confessed to the murder while he was talking to the detectives. He told them what had happened with a smile on his face and was very matter-of-fact about everything. He never tried to hide anything. He said that he had committed this horrendous crime because he was angry with his family 
because they had placed him in a rehab program after falsely accusing him of using drugs. He was asked how he felt about killing his mother, and his response was, I feel like I did the right thing. He wasn't on Dr. Phil, was he? Oh, I don't know. I love me some Dr. Phil, though. There was a guy that was, I looked at one that he was on Dr. Phil and he was terrifying, but I don't think that was his name. So he was put on trial for this, but he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was diagnosed schizophrenic. And during that time of the murder, he was experiencing what are called auditory hallucinations that commanded him to kill his mother. Instead of jail time, he was ordered to be involuntarily committed to a state mental hospital. His case will be periodically reviewed approximately every six months, and since the state attorney's office cannot oppose the mental hospital's reevaluations and considerations, he can potentially walk out as a free man after any of these reevaluations. Yeah. So Ronald Jean Simmons was 47 years old and he'd been married to his wife for 18 years. They had seven kids together. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. That's a lot. Not practicing birth control there. <laughs> Did I say it was 1987? And he was being investigated on suspicions of sexual abuse and incest. Some were oh. speculating that he had fathered a child with his 17-year-old daughter oh. who he'd been sexually abusing. Ooh. Yeah. So on December 22nd, while some of his kids were gone, some of them are grown at this point. Some of them are not grown. Children. Children. (laughs) And some of them are like not grown children who are just not home. Got it. Got it. Okay. So they were just placed with They're other families? They're a little scattered. Or, okay. Yeah. But no, no, no. They were just like not at the house at this exact moment. Oh, okay. this moment. Yeah. Okay. The grown children don't live here. Right. But... The children, teenagers, children. and yeah. whatever they live okay. there, but they're not all at the house at this exact moment. Got it. So on December twenty second, while some of his kids were gone, he killed his wife Rebecca and his oldest son Gene by shooting them with a pistol, Ooh. and then he killed his three year old granddaughter (air quotes) by strangulation. <gasps> this is the little girl that they're not sure who she actually really belongs to, father wise. Strangulation, though. Yeah, he dumped the bodies into a pit that he'd previously forced his kids oh. to dig. What? Yeah. He waited for the rest of his kids to return home, and then he told them that he had presents for them, but he had to give them to them individually. He started with his daughter, Loretta, the one that he had been abusing, supposedly, Uh allegedly. And he strangled her before holding her head in a barrel of water until she drowned. Yeah. He got angry. Like, Yeah, this isn't like a... Oh, no. This is personal. Right. His other three kids, Eddie, Marianne, and Becky, were all killed the same way. And then on December 26, hit, and I'm assuming at that point they were put in the pit or mm-hmm. whatever. On December 26, so this is four days later, his son Billy and his wife Renata came to celebrate Christmas with their son oh. Trey. They had no idea what had happened at the house at this point. So they come rolling into town, and he shoots Billy and Renata and then strangles and drowns their son. Wow. Yeah. He also shot and killed his daughter, Sheila, who was rolling in for Christmas, and then also seven-year-old Sylvia Gale. I don't know who she is and what her relation is to the family because she's got a different last name, but he shoots and kills her and also kills his 21-month-old grandson, Michael. Oh, my God. Yeah. Then he takes the bodies... And he lays them out 
in rows, perfect rows, in his lounge room and covers them with coats. Ew. The grandsons that are little babies, he wraps them in plastic and leaves them in an abandoned car up the lane. Oh my God. He then decides to go to a bar because obviously what else do you do on the day after Christmas other than go drink? So yeah, he posts up at a bar and then returns home later that night and continues to drink beer and watch TV with the corpses still in the lounge. Oh my God. Yeah. He's literally just like coexisting with them. I'm so confused. For two days. Yeah. Oh. And on December 28th, he decides to drive to Russellville. Um, He walks into a law office and shoots and kills the receptionist, Kathy Kendrick. He does this because he'd previously been into her, but she rejected him because you're a married, incestual, creepy man. So she turned him down. um, So he got revenge and killed her. Then he went over to the oil company office and shot and killed a man named J.D. Chaffin and wounded the owner, Rusty Taylor, before he drove to a convenience store where he shot and killed two more people. Jesus Christ! Who aren't identified. (laughs) Yeah, he's... He's on a rampage. Yeah, literally just taking people out. Then he went over to the Woodline Motor Freight Company where he wounded a woman there. Um, She didn't actually die, but he wounded her with a gunshot and then sat in the office and chatted with the secretaries while he waited for the cops to show up. The fuck? Yeah, he literally was just like chilling, chatting, chatting up. Wow. He surrendered to them without any resistance, handed over the guns. No big deal to him. No big deal. Yeah. He was sentenced to death and refused to appeal it. He was constantly threatened on death row and had to remain isolated. Apparently, the death row inmates weren't thrilled with the fact that he was refusing to appeal his sentence because that made it harder, supposedly, for them to appeal theirs. I don't, Uh, I I really don't necessarily buy that that's the reason. I think it more had to do with, like, there's a code of conduct. Yeah. Yeah. You don't kill kids. Yeah. Also, you don't rape your own daughter. Right. He died of lethal injection on June 25th, 1990. His relatives actually refused to claim the body. Oh. So he was buried in some unmarked grave. Yeah. Wow. I wouldn't, wow. I wouldn't claim it either. Yeah. Holy shit, he, that is the true definition of a rampage. Yeah, literally. Over, like, uh... Like, five mass, days or six, something? Five, six, six day days? Six-day period, yeah. And to go... And it was literally, like, he he just, like, kind of decided it. He was like, all right, I'm, this is what I'm gonna do. Damn, that's a lot of people. Yep. Okay. All right, so the next story is of Connie Villa, and this took place in Casa Grande, Arizona. Connie was married to Adam Villa, and together they had four children, ages 3, 5, 8, and 13. Her and Adam had recently divorced, and Adam was trying to gain full custody of all four children. On Christmas Day, 2013, Connie just fucking snapped. Oh, curveball it's the female Uh uh-huh i was just thinking in my head man women just don't seem to snap on the holidays (laughs) like men do this dumb bitch did (laughs) so she had dropped off the younger children at her parents house so the three the five and the Mm eight-year-old and the 13 year old stayed home with her seemingly out of nowhere she attacked her 13 year old daughter what Right, you're thinking the husband, right? So she attacked her 13-year-old daughter, Anna Real, and strangled her 
with her own hands. And this was only after she didn't die because she tried poisoning her with prescription drugs. So she didn't die from the opioids and she just took matters into her own hands quite literally and strangled her to death and put her down in the bathtub. Oh my gosh. Same day, Christmas Day, she lured her ex-husband Adam to her home and as soon as he got inside, she attacked him by stabbing him repeatedly. During the attack, Adam managed to escape and called the police as he was driving himself to a nearby hospital. When the police got to her house, they had to force themselves in, of course, and found that Connie had self-inflicted knife wounds in an apparent suicide attempt. They were able to get her to the hospital and get her medical attention, and she survived. So did Adam. The police then tracked down the younger children at the grandparents' house, and tests were performed on them, and they discovered that the three five- and eight-year-olds all had prescription opioids in their system. Oh, my gosh. So she had also tried to kill them. Sheesh. Villa was charged with one count of first-degree murder for the death of her 13-year-old daughter and four counts of attempted murder for the poisoning of the younger children and the almost deadly stabbing of Adam. She was eventually sentenced to life in prison for Anna Riel's death and received 155 and a half years for the other crimes. 155 and a half. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure, just to seal the deal. <laughs> just don't just feel like rounding in that case, I guess. <laughs> no, very precise. All but right. Yeah, three, five-year-old, eight-year-olds. Ugh, uh, come on, moms. Oh, dude, this lady, she's fucked up. And her picture, it's just disgusting It's looking. so interesting, too, how we're like so much more triggered by moms who go off the deep end then it goes against instinct dude it does it does it really does i am right but no. just the fact that she and th- this was all over custody yeah and this is a uh, you know it stands out because a lot of the times we do hear that men are the ones that snap or you know like the case we covered was a couple of weeks ago that he wanted custody so he off the mom and but in this case it was the mom that snapped it happens i guess obviously adam was onto something and wanted full custody for the right reasons so yeah he felt it coming all right my eyeball story Ooh. yeah Oh, yeah, this one's a really God. gross. You're going to freak out. Oh, you're going to freak out. Okay. okay. So Alexis Valdez was 18 years old. He was living with his aunt and her boyfriend, Sylvester Diaz Hernandez. The condition for him living there was that he had to attend school, go to work and chip in on household expenses. But he stopped working. Ergo, he stopped paying, and he was asked to move out right before Christmas Eve, and this was in 2013. Okay. Sylvester, the boyfriend, went to a party on Christmas Eve night while his aunt, while Alexis's aunt was visiting family, and when Sylvester returned home, he found that Alexis had drank all the beer in the time that he'd been gone. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Alexis had just been drinking and fuming at this point. Ooh, just simmering and... Yeah, ugh. because he's been kicked out. So he, Sylvester decided that he wanted more beer. So he decided that he was going to go to the store and he made Alexis go with him. 
Probably because he didn't trust that little... Yeah. Yeah, by himself. So he took him with him, but not before Alexis stashed a hammer behind the door. The car door? No, the front door of the house. Oh. Or a door in the house. Okay. On Christmas Day, a 911 call was made by Alexis to report a dead body. Whoa. The operator asked if he performed CPR, and Alexis laughed and said the body had been decapitated. What? <laughs> Holy shit. Police responded to the call and found Alexis sitting covered in blood out on the front porch. When police asked him what happened, he said, you shouldn't arrest me. Or no, he said, quote, shouldn't you arrest me before you ask me questions? Because I just killed a man and he's in the basement. What? 17-year-old? He's 18. 18. Yeah. Police said that Sylvester had been found bludgeoned in the head with a hammer. It's the same hammer that Alexis previously hid. Alexis had hit him in the head with a hammer and then covered all the windows in the house and turned up the music while he gouged out his eyes with his fingers. What? And then proceeded to cut off his ears, nose, mouth, arm, hand, and eventually his head with a knife. Then he took the body parts, particularly the head, and dumped them on his aunt's bed because he wanted to, quote, leave her a Christmas present. No. His plan was for his aunt to come home and find the body, and he said at that point he was planning on killing his aunt, but he wore himself out from dismembering it, so he decided to just go ahead and call the police himself before she found it. He was actually sentenced to only 33 years for it. What? Yep. He'll be out by his 50. Yeah. Yeah. 50, 51. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's relatively... A light sentence. I think so. For a remembering? Really? Yeah. For decapitating? You know, there's like... I'd have to make a phone call. But <laughs> isn't there like aggravated murder, murder charges or something? You can't, isn't aggravated murder? Right. Mm-hmm. I feel like there should be more of a <laughs> an extra aggravated murder. <laughs> because this is so... Like, this is extra. This is super... Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. To just like snap and decide that you're going to like gouge someone's eyes out with your fingers. Oh and then shit. You're, I forgot about that too. Cause yeah. I was thinking about the dismembering. And then you start dismembering somebody. You're 18 years old. Like what? And if you see this kid's picture, like his mugshot, he's he cuckoo. He looks like demons live inside him. Oof. Yeah. He even gives you the heebs. No, he's dead inside. But how do you do that and not be is my question. Right. They probably charged him with premeditated, too, since he had laid the hammer out. Probably. Right. That would be my guess. Mm. Oh, well, that's a good, good, terrible story. Yeah. <laughs> Terribly good story. <laughs> good, terrible story. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving right along. <laughs> so our second to last story will be of Michelle Kristen Anderson. This happened in Carnation, Washington. She and her boyfriend, Joseph Thomas McEnroe, were living on her parents' property in a mobile home. On Christmas Eve 2007, Michelle's parents, Wayne and Judy, invited her and Joseph over to the house for a family meal. Michelle's brother, Scott, his wife, Erica, and their two children, Olivia and Nathan, would be attending as well. Michelle and Joseph showed up to the dinner, and Scott and Erica and the kids were not there just yet. 
something or sometime during that dinner while they're getting ready for the dinner Wayne and Judy Michelle's parents brought up to her that they wanted her to start paying rent for living on the property for living in their mobile home this is apparently what pissed off Michelle and Joseph oh we got another female Uh uh-huh so this upset her so much because to her it seemed like they were favoriting one sibling over the other mm. and that they never asked anything of from Scott and over the years I don't know how she got her money but she had lent over $40,000 to her brother Scott and he had never repaid her back or had any plans to start repaying her anytime soon wow. so before how much to him Forty thousand dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah, we don't lend that kind of money. No, sorry, no. I don't care who you are. You're not getting that from me. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a that's lot. a Range Rover. Yeah, if that's you a- if you have to lend somebody forty thousand dollars, you cannot expect them to be capable of paying you back. That's a really good point. I thank you. I so, think so too. <laughs> before Scott and Eric and the kids got there because of this altercation that they were having, this argument. Michelle and Joseph shot Wayne and Judy. Okay. <laughs> that shook you a little bit. <laughs> it's just, it's so abrupt. Uh-huh. So, after they had shot Wayne and Judy, shortly afterwards, her brother Scott, his wife Erica, and the two kids showed up to the house for dinner. Michelle and Joseph let them come in the house. I don't know exactly where Wayne and Judy were, but they let them come in the house, get comfortable, and then started arguing as well and michelle and joseph shot scott sheesh and then erica was pleading with them not to kill the children somehow during the struggle erica managed to get a call out to 911 yes get it girl couldn't say anything the police heard a bunch of noise but because it's christmas eve they thought it was a party and someone may have accidentally no. called them. No. The dispatcher, though, she didn't just think that and let it go. She called back twice and it went straight to voicemail. After this phone call was made, because Michelle knew that maybe the police would have been alerted down the driveway of the house and blocked the gate that led up to the house. So the police did show up but couldn't go in because of the gate being locked. So they couldn't go all the way up to the house. So being that there was actually no evidence of there being right. an emergency, they couldn't in. couldn't go in. Eventually, unfortunately, Michelle and Joseph shot Erica, shot the kids. Wow. And it's reported by the police that maybe Joseph shot them first, and then Michelle just overkilled and shot them all again sheesh the next day a co-worker of judy so michelle's mom showed up to her house at about 8 a.m because judy hadn't showed up for her job as usual she was a male lady and she never missed her route before this she is the one that found the grizzly scene and called the police michelle and joseph showed up to the house while the police were there taking in the scene as if they didn't knew what the hell had happened and were just being nosy and asking questions to the police. Wow. 
one of the officers thought this was completely fucking weird. Yeah. They see what's going on. And they started questioning them almost on the spot, but then realized, nope, this has to be done official. So they took him into custody. Good job, officers. Right. Because that could have been a big fuck up. Yeah. So they took him into custody. And this is where the official interrogation where they both confessed. They didn't even try to hide anything. They were both charged with six counts of aggravated first degree murder and given life in prison. Again, over money. At least they got their free rent now. Ugh. Jesus Christ, that's so true and that's so fucking terrible. Oh, the irony. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> this one is the Yazdanpana family. On Christmas morning of 2011, Aziz Yazdanpana, who was 56 years old, showed up at his estranged wife's apartment dressed as Santa Claus. If we've learned one thing, it's that the people dressed as Santa Claus are the one that you have to watch out for. <laughs> Him and his wife. <laughs> We're gonna people who do this every time a year dress up a Santa Claus and go to malls to work are gonna hate us. If I open the door and I see a Santa Claus sitting outside, like, nope. I'm gonna be like, ah <laughs> Slam. Him and his wife had been having marital problems. He also had financial problems. He was very controlling he actually forbid his wife to work even though she was a licensed cosmetologist they'd filed bankruptcy while they'd been married after that time he'd become unemployed and it was only then that he allowed her to work and at that point she held down jobs at two different salons but since then they had become estranged they were struggling in their marriage everything like that by accounts it sounds like there was some strain there obviously with the kids and everything like that So his niece texted a friend when he showed up to the apartment and the text said, quote, we just got here and my uncle is here too, dressed as Santa. Awesome. And I can like... Like a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Awesome. My uncle's here. Great. Awesome. Perfect. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, In a separate message, she said, now he wants to be all fatherly and win father of the year. Oh, Jesus. This girl was going in on him. Yeah, so she, like, hated him, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. And for good reason, as we're about to find out. Only 19 minutes passed between that text and a 911 call made by presumably Aziz. You could hear muffled calls for help in the background. (gasps) And then I think it said something like, I killed people or something like that. And then the call disconnected. Oh. He had opened fire on his own family and had shot and killed his wife, who was Fatima Rahmadi, uh, their daughter Nona, their son Ali, Aziz's sister-in-law. Her name was Zuri Rahmadi, her husband Muhammad Hussein Zuri, and their daughter Sarah, who was the niece that was texting. Uh-huh. Um, his son, daughter, niece, and sister-in-law were all shot multiple times in the head. Jesus. The rest of does died by gunshot wounds either to the head or stomach or whatever it may be um he then turned the gun on himself but not before he staged the scene to place a gun in the hand of his brother-in-law to make it look like muhammad had actually done it he wanted to make it look like his brother-in-law had done it not him oh what a terrible fucking thing to do yeah you couldn't even be man enough to say he was Okay, I am so confused. Basically, he wanted to make it look like his brother-in-law had done it. He didn't carry the responsibility of it. 
even though like it was he had a gun in his hand too because he had to shoot himself in the head it's not like he shot himself in the head and then had time to do something with the gun before he died so like it like he put the gun in his brother-in-law's hand but then he also still had a gun in his hand and it was really easy for them to figure out with forensics that he was the one that fired the weapons and not his brother-in-law but he wanted to make it look like somebody else had done it just for like saving face almost that would be my assumption that's it because i mean he killed himself so nobody had to do any prison time or anything like that but yeah he took out his whole family and nothing really as far as like a motive other than the marital stress and the financial stress and everything like that and he just ultimately lost his shit oh also i didn't write this down but apparently there had been a big party the night before there was a big Muslim community where he lived and they'd all had a big Christmas Eve party mm-hmm. and he had not been invited to that Christmas oh. Eve party. So there's a potential maybe. Ah, okay, hold on. Now I have a theory. So there's a potential. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my theory is that he wasn't invited to the party. His big community of people that, you know, they, they're a close-knit group, right. same religious affiliation. They'd done their big Christmas Eve party or whatever. And he hadn't been invited. And so being pissed off, upset about that, everything else, he snapped. By putting the gun in his brother-in-law's hand, the community that he was close with or whoever else it might be Mm -hmm. that didn't invite him to the party would then maybe blame the brother-in-law and not him. And then... I to guess, what end, though? Save face for the community right. or whoever else was surviving at that point. I don't oh. know. Maybe he had like parents or something nearby oh, or something maybe, like maybe, that. Maybe. That's my theory. I'm That's sticking a good theory. to it. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is Holy not my first shit. time. <laughs> so, right. Merry Christmas, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Feliz Navidad, all the things. Remember, this is supposed to be a happy time of year. Don't go kill anyone. Yes, like I said, deck halls, not bodies. And if you see Santa walk in, fucking run. I thought you were going to say, if you see something, say something. (laughs) No, if you see Santa, run. (laughs) Yeah, don't open the door for a man dressed like Santa Claus. (laughs) Let him come through the chimney. Yeah. Like usual. (laughs) Yeah. And don't change up living arrangements before the holidays. Holy shit. That's all the advice I have for you guys. <laughs> all right. Hope you enjoyed those 12 quick hits. I know that we didn't go into too much detail, but we were trying to fit them all into one episode for you. So I hope you enjoyed all of them. I don't think we left too much details out in all of them. Yeah. I think we gave them to you. Spark notes. Fast and quick and... Fast and dirty. Done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you would like to give us a Christmas gift, this is what you can do for us. I'm accepting gifts. Yep. (laughs) Um, You can DM me and ask me what I would like on (laughs) our Instagram at a stranger danger podcast. You can email us at a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at stranger danger, a true crime podcast or Twitter using SD true crime pod. That's it, folks. Thank you so much, you guys. And Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Feliz Navidad, all those things. (laughs) (laughs) And eat all the food. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Eat the food, drink the drinks. But don't kill your family. Thanks. Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs)